my favorite person on the planet will surprise none of you. It's Donna Burtnett. Donna is the person I would choose to do anything or everything with. I would choose to be with her even when shooting at that gallery at Disneyland where she never misses. I love my wife. With Donna, I am freer than with anyone else on the planet. She knows my secrets and she loves me anyways. This Love and this freedom is protected by something. A promise, certainly. A little piece of gold, also. But it is protected by something stronger than a piece of gold. Law. Strange thing to come up in this conversation. But because I wear this ring, I can, and often do, kiss my wife, and I kiss her in public. I kiss her at church. And I love it when people comment on that because then I just get to kiss her again. Right there in front of everybody because that is the most Christian and loving thing to do. And because I wear this ring, I don't kiss any other woman. There's a law against that. It's the seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. Or as we will say in a few weeks, do not dishonor your spouse. Because I wear this ring, I will not ride in a car alone with a woman who is not my wife, my mom, my sister, or my daughter. Because I wear this ring, I won't do a whole list of things with another woman, even if the mainstream media calls me a misogynist because of it. Now I have a question. Is this because of a law? Well, yes, it is. The law of God says, do not dishonor my wife. Now, as you know, laws are broken all the time. And unlike the law of gravity, we do not often immediately see the consequences of breaking this law. I don't start falling if I break the law not to dishonor my wife. But I will find later when I break God's law, I will have already been falling. Do I refuse to be alone with a woman because of law? Well, no. Not really. Because love is not law. But if you love someone, there are things that you just won't do. If you love someone, there are things you must do. And an internal must. If you love someone, there are attitudes you simply won't have. And if you love someone, there are attitudes you simply have to have. Because it's, it's welling up inside you. Because you love. Do I refuse to allow attraction to grow in my heart for another woman because of law? Well, no. I refuse to go down that road because I have found that over the last almost 24 years, can you believe that girl? In six weeks, she will have been married to me for 24 years. Yeah, seven weeks, seven weeks. I miscounted. 
But I have found over these last almost 24 years that I have a freedom I simply could not otherwise have had because for the last 24 years I have kept the law of trustworthiness. And now Donna trusts me. I give hugs to most of the women in this room because everyone needs a hug and because my wife knows that I mean to be pastoral in doing it and am not illegal in any sense of the word in terms of my relationship with Donna. And this is enormous freedom. And many of you know this and are thankful for it. This law-keeping that I have diligently kept for the last 24 plus years. My friends, this is why love fulfills the law. The best and only way to keep the law is to love God and to love the near ones Jesus puts by you. This is the Christian or New Testament or biblical way to obey the Ten Commandments that we are going to harp on for each of the next ten weeks in this series. We will find that love and freedom and law-keeping are all intimately related. This is true for your relationship with your wife. This is true for your relationship with your God. And remaining within the confines of the Ten Commandments is the safest freest and most loving place you can be in this universe. So tonight I want to continue and conclude my introduction to the Ten Commandments so that you and I will have a solid understanding of some very basic principles before we go through these Ten Commandments one by one. Tonight I want to emphasize freedom. Freedom that God's people find in the Ten Commandments as well as the love that is the only way for us to be free in them. So first, what is freedom? Freedom is the desire and ability to do what is best. Now this needs some unpacking, some elaboration. So we'll begin with a contrast. Most of the world around us defines freedom negatively. Freedom is almost universally described as freedom from something. Freedom from restraint is seen as the highest attainment by this culture. And certainly there is a sense in which this is true. Any tyranny, any undue outside pressure takes some freedom away. But not everything you can do ought you to do. An analogy would be if a fish desired to have the freedom of escaping his tank. Having escaped the tank and landing on the floor, how long would it enjoy its freedom? Having escaped the boundaries set by loving family and friends and Jesus, how long will a human enjoy the freedom of lying on the floor of a bar or a jail cell? Because they have not kept the Ten Commandments. Now, those of us who recognize our position before the Lord of the universe, the one we ought to call your majesty, those of us who recognize our position before the Lord of the universe see in this expression of our own sinful heart and recognize that there are many kinds of slavery. And some chains cannot be seen by the physical eye. Now, on the contrary, God's Word, specifically the Ten Commandments, promotes freedom. 
Freedom enhanced and empowered through restraints, similar to the restraints of a train track. The most powerful locomotives, you may not know this, but the most powerful locomotives around develop 15,000 horsepower. And all of these horses, however, are absolutely useless if they are not kept on a fairly narrow, very defined, and constraining track 54 and one-half inches apart from one another. Get off those steel beams and you have nothing. Stay on those tracks and you are free literally to move mountains. Human beings are similarly made. Stay within the Ten Commandments as interpreted by Jesus. And the human being will flourish beyond our current imagination. My friends, just wait till we get to the new kingdom. And we are free indeed. For example, allow me to note the verse that Jesus used to begin his preaching ministry he quoted from Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Well, I have a question. What captivity is he talking about? What binding is Isaiah referring to? Well, giving the context of Jesus' ministry, the captivity that binds us is our slavery to sin. It is my irresistible, inevitable bent towards my flesh that is bent away from the Lord and it holds me captive. So I do not do what I want, but the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Sound familiar? In fact, reading Romans, that passage is in Romans 7, we find that a large portion of his magnum opus is given to exploring the freedom we have in Christ. You remember when we were there. Chapter 5 discusses our freedom from our old self. Chapter 6 discusses our freedom from sin. Chapter 7 discusses our freedom from the law. And chapter 8 discusses our freedom from condemnation and death. And all this freedom comes about because we are in Christ. Because we are abiding in Christ because Christ paid the penalty we deserve because of our captivity and bondage to sin and death. And Jesus comes and He proclaims this jubilee year. He proclaims release from and return from Babylon and this liberty to return to the promised land Jesus promises is for those who love the Word of God, which is exactly why Jesus is able to say, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters. God made humans to run on His track. True freedom is abiding in His Word and following His track. Not two steel beams 54.5 inches apart, but His track found in the Ten Commandments. 
To return to the fish metaphor, true freedom is not lying on the floor gasping for breath. True freedom is found in staying in that which makes human flourishing possible. The law, specifically the Ten Commandments, is the track that keeps the train going. The Ten Commandments are, is the bowl that keeps the life-giving water in place so that you can breathe the air of freedom and love and peace and joy. Which brings us exactly to the passage I want to examine tonight as we end our introduction to the Ten Commandments. It's found in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. James writes this, he says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I modified someone else's statement and changed it to this. Apply your life to the words so that you may be able to apply the word to your life. Apply your life to the word so that you may be able to apply the word to your life. Look steadily and continuously into the word so that you will know and love and trust the promises of God for you in Christ. That is is the lesson that James is trying to get through our brains and into our hearts in this passage. And note, I want us to note that James uses three images. The Word, a mirror, and the law. Notice right there in verse 22. Be doers of the Word. Well, in order to be a doer of the Word, you need to examine the Word. You need to know what's in the Word. You need to go to the Word. You need to apply your life to the Word. You need to examine the Word and hear what it says, then do something about it. In fact, I find it interesting. There's two connotations to the word know found almost everywhere in Scripture. The first entails an, an intimacy between the known and the knower. But the second implies, it, it entails a doing of something. The Bible doesn't know a mere intellectual knowledge. It is either a relational knowledge or it is an active knowledge. Or it is both. But, it's so much easier just to think about it. Oh, fill my head with knowledge. Let me just sit here and hear you preach to me. It takes a humble heart that is willing to obey, that is willing to turn over the will to the great lawgiver. It is the willingness to obey that is the number one prerequisite to understanding God's Word. It's exactly what Jesus tells us in John 7.17. 7, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Jesus says, in other words, if you want to know if my words really are God's words, then tell God, God, I want to do what you say. 
And he'll give you understanding so that you can do it. My friends, the fact that you don't get predestination or that you don't understand what the Bible means when it says says we make real, eternally significant choices is in most cases not because you're mentally deficient or it's too hard to understand. It's that you don't want to obey it. You struggle with some doctrines? Well, good. Join the rest of the club. We're all there. But understand that in most cases, the reason why we don't understand difficult doctrines is because we don't want to obey them. We don't want to trust them by basing our life on what they teach. And this gets us back to the point that James makes in verses 23 and 24. James picks up on the image of a mirror. Now this was a a common philosophical tool image that was used in his day. And I think he knew that and he picked it up on purpose to use it for godly purposes. Because one of the chief purposes of the Word of God is to be a mirror to the reader. The Bible is a mirror that allows you to look at yourself. The Bible is a mirror that allows you to see the ugly birthmarks of pride and covetousness and bitterness. And the Bible is a mirror that allows you to see the new birth, the second birth marks of humility and sacrifice and love. Now, it's easy to overanalyze and psychologize James's metaphor. James, if you've ever read his book, he is not overly subtle. That's, that's not his thing. The point is very simple here. If you go to God's Word to make yourself feel better, oh, I did my homework today, or if you go to God's Word to make yourself look good in someone else's eyes, ooh, I read the Bible seven times this week. If that's why you go to God's Word, then you will have already received your reward and you will leave the Word of God unchanged. If, however, you realize that God's Word is God's law and that you are obliged to obey the King of kings and Lord of lords, then you will see yourself clearly enough to have God work in and through and for you. And you will be blessed just as Jesus promised. Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. Which brings us right here to verse 25. The key phrase in this verse is the perfect law, the law of liberty, or as Michael Horton translates it, the law of perfect freedom. The person who sets his heart, who perseveres, who endures through struggle, who endures through failure. I'm talking to myself here. For the person who perseveres through failure to keep the law and keeps turning back to Him and turning back to the Word and who keeps looking at the law of perfect freedom, you will find grace and peace and wholeness, joy, Because that's what God gives. 
Turn your heart to knowing and loving God's law and you will find that the power of God is freely given to you. This power is given without consideration of any merit because you have no merit. You don't deserve God's power. This power is given to accomplish His purposes. How, however imperfectly you keep those purposes. When you turn your heart to know and love God and His law, you will be given the power and grace and freedom to love and therefore keep the Ten Commandments. This and nothing else is true freedom. Because freedom is the ability the desire and the ability to do what is best. Do you want to be free? Do you want to know and love what God gives you? Life and joy and peace. Do you want to know and love what it is that gives you life and joy and peace? Do you want to be the kind of person who routinely chooses God in His glory? Do you want to be free to desire to do what is best? Seek to understand the Ten Commandments and to love accordingly. Now, before we can have this kind of freedom, we need to compare and contrast another thing, another prerequisite to understanding. Like I said, I'm still doing my introduction to the Ten Commandments. Before we can understand how to live and love in this kind of freedom, we need to understand the distinction between legalism and license. Now, you have heard me on a couple of occasions over the last few years make a distinction between four kinds of legalism. The first is salvation legalism. Salvation legalism says you must do this in order to be saved. You must go to this church. You must be baptized at this place. You must walk door to door every Saturday morning. You must have Jesus and this, whatever this is. All of those statements are some flavor of salvation legalism. Because unless the this you are told to do is repent and believe, which in fact are the conditions of salvation listed in Scripture, unless it, this is repent and believe, insisting on baptism or church attendance or something else is absolutely contrary to biblical Christianity. And for the most part, evangelicals, we don't struggle with salvation legalism. I mean, it pretty much defines us to stand against it. However, I think many of us in this room will find that we, in fact, do struggle with one or both of the following two kinds of legalism. The first is sanctification, yes, legalism. I call sanctification Yes, legalism, the kind that says you must do something in order to be a good Christian. Now, this is a tricky one. This is tough. You have heard me say that Scripture memorization is the most important discipline for spiritual growth. I stand by that. Memorizing Bible verses is the most important discipline you can engage in in order to grow as a Christian. But I have not said that you must memorize Scripture if you're going to be a good Christian. There is a subtle difference there. If I make a law of Scripture memorization, in other words, you need to memorize three verses a week or you're a bad Christian, then I am stepping out of 
biblical Christianity. I'm stepping out of salvation by grace through faith, and I'm stepping out of what the Bible defines as proper Holy Spirit-led sanctification. I'm going to make a couple of you stumble right now. This is the look-at-me flavor of hypocrisy that I'm not going to define for you yet, but we'll get there in a few weeks. Look-at-me hypocrisy. Now, the flip side of sanctification, yes, legalism, is obviously sanctification, no legalism. This kind of legalism says you must not do this in order to be a good Christian. You're all familiar with this. Don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. Again, there is wisdom in much of what gets associated with sanctification, no legalism. Thank you for laughing. I I so rarely get laughs. I, I just love that. Thank you. Thank you sincerely. There's a lot of wisdom in what has often come across as sanctification, no legalism, right? But once again, the next fatal step is that you're a bad person if you do these things, which is a step too far. This is a flavor of hypocrisy that I'll call look at you hypocrisy. I'm hoping I'm making you guys wonder about that because it's going to be a few weeks before we get there. There is one more kind of legalism that we must note, and that is what I call sanity legalism. There are many Christians who have left the lives of drugs and alcohol, for example, who face a struggle so real that they must avoid all appearance of that evil, evil, even if that isn't necessarily a sin for everyone. This person who engages in sanity legalism recognizes their weakness and they must take every precaution not to engage in it because they know these things will overpower them. This is in fact exactly what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 14 who instructs those who are stronger not to force our knowledge on our brother who seeks to remain sane through this kind of legalism. Now, We can see the problems of legalism, and and I would say that the problems of legalism are real and have infected the church. But I think in these days, there are problems with the opposite attitude as well. And we will call this attitude or this problem license. The law, whatever that law is a sinner might refer to, even us Christians, will say, well, that law doesn't apply to me. Now, in general, Christians don't think this way. We would never say, I don't have to obey the law. That kind of thing usually doesn't come out expressed like that. Instead, what happens is they just don't want to think about the law. They ignore it. Oh, that's legalism. They don't think in terms of our responsibilities to holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If we don't think in terms of our responsibilities to holiness, we are making a mistake. We are making a serious mistake. And we need to ask ourselves, 
If we don't think in terms of holiness, what on earth makes us different from the people who don't want to get up early on Sunday morning and want to watch football? Probably nothing, which is why the church in the West is declining. Instead, we have trained ourselves to mislisten to the truth that we are saved by grace through faith. Now let me say, say this clearly. We are saved by grace through faith. But many of us have chosen to mislisten to this statement, we are saved by grace through faith. Let me make this clear. We are saved by grace. We are saved by God's power that is at work in us apart from anything that we can deserve so that we can accomplish His purposes. Which, in every case, but especially in the case we're talking about, that purpose that he gives us power to accomplish is faith. Is trusting in the promises of God for us in Christ so that we can walk the way he calls us to walk. i got to pause for a second. If you are not offended by something in every single one of the next ten sermons I preach in this series, I have not done my job. If you are not offended by something that I say in each of the sermons on the individual Ten Commandments, then I am a bad preacher. I give you my permission. You don't have to come. I hope that I offend every single person in this room at least once every single week. Why? Because the law is offensive. I don't like being reminded that I covet and that I lie and steal. If you do, welcome. I'd love to have you. But I have to ask another question. What is faith? What is trust in God's promises? What does it mean to believe if it does not mean that we should walk in the path given to us by the one in whom we have placed our trust? What does it mean to have faith in God's Word if we do not intend to obey what He commands in that Word? If we do not decide to strive to know and love and keep the Ten Commandments, however imperfectly we do it, because we will be imperfect. If we don't strive to know and love and cherish these commandments, which are the life that God has given us, by grace through faith, expressed in love. If we do not intend that, what are we doing? It's really not faith in God at all. But I have another question. I, I, you know, I'm kind of a practical guy. What might it look like? Okay, Greg, I'm a Christian. I, I want to know, Pastor Greg, what, what might this look like? Okay, well, let me give you an example. We might tell ourselves about whatever law that we're trying to ignore, we might say, well, in this case, 
I'm going to follow the spirit of the law. Has anybody ever said that? I'm going to follow the spirit of law. So, so even though the law says no, I'm going to do it. Or, more often I think perhaps, we might say, oh, this is a small sin. Jesus is going to forgive me because this is such a small sin. Anytime you think, oh, this is a small sin, Jesus is going to forgive me, you are in trouble. Anytime you have a thought that says, this is a small sin, Jesus will forgive me, Satan or one of his demons is whispering in your ear right now. Flee. He is more powerful than you. Flee. Where? Where do I run? God's Word. Oh, come on. You're, you're being overdramatic, Pastor Greg. Oh, am I? Cheating on your taxes? Teaching your children to lie? Intentionally speeding or reacting angrily towards other drivers because they'll never see you anyways. Taking something from a corporation because you deserve it or because they make too much money. We are all guilty. Okay, let's breathe for a second. A little hot in here. So we see that there are two wrong ways of looking at the law. There is a legalism way, which is very real, and we're going to define that more closely as we go along. And there is also a license way, or for you Theo geeks, antinomianism. I promise I won't say that too many times, but there you have it. Instead, Jesus teaches us to keep the law. Jesus teaches us to love. Jesus teaches us to love. To keep the law is to love God and love our near ones. You have heard me say already now two sermons in a row, and you will probably hear me repeat it more than once in the future, that love and law are intimately related. Properly understood, the Ten Commandments are kept by the Christian by loving. Love God. Love those Jesus gave to be your near ones. Keeping the Ten Commandments through loving God and others is pictured by two wings on an airplane. You take either wing away and you are going down. The Ten Commandments are the expression of what the love you have for God and your neighbor looks like. Don't miss this. This is, this is absolutely crucial to everything we're going to say as we go through the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the expression of what the love you have for God and your neighbor looks like. If you do not habitually desire to live by the Ten Commandments, however imperfectly, if you do not habitually, if you do not constantly, dearly long to live by the Ten Commandments, then you need to ask yourself, do I love God or my neighbor? Because the answer is probably no. 
If you habitually love God and your neighbor, then you don't need to ask yourself, do I long to keep the Ten Commandments? Because the answer is going to be yes. And there's grace. And there's the power of the Holy Spirit to make up for the times that we fail as we are striving to keep them. To love God and our neighbor. And you will recognize as you're pursuing this path the big idea we had from last time. I am saved by the wood and I am taught by the stone. You will not be saved if you do not trust in the wood, in the cross. And you will not love if you are not taught by the stone. Now, the fun part. I don't know. It's fun for me. I'm a weirdo. With a view to enable us to live this kind of pairing of love and law, I want to give you a tool that I was given by my college-age Sunday school teacher, George Pendleton. George taught us how to memorize the Ten Commandments in order. If we are going to be taught by the stone, then we need to take our first steps in learning what was on that stone. If you don't know what the Ten Commandments are, how are you going to keep them? So let's begin. The first three of the Ten Commandments are have no other gods, have no idols, and do not take the Lord's name in vain. Now, Interestingly, if you break it down like this, what you have is NIV. NIV is what we in the 1990s used as our main Bible translation. Does anybody remember those ancient days? Yeah. When we used the nearly inspired version. Now we use the Bible, the English Standard Version. And the NIV, okay, well, well that's okay, we, we got that. NIV, have no other gods, have no idols, and don't take the Lord's name in vain. Now what about the following four verses? What we're going to use is an acronym SHMA. Well, what on earth is SHMA? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Jews call it the Shemach. The Shemach is Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Just like our kids memorize John 3.16 over and over and over. By the way, also John 1 Corinthians 10.31, which says, whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. I made that my boy's verse, and now I'm also making it my daughter's verse. But I digress. Deuteronomy 6.4 in Hebrew is Shmach Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. I'm sorry about the, that's kind of a weird Hebrew script. I know you guys are having a hard time reading it, but I did too. I just want you to know that. So, next slide. What we see is NIV, no, have no other gods, have no idols, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And then the Shemach is keep the Sabbath. S, H, honor your parents. M, do not murder. A, do not commit adultery. And if you know the Shemach in the NIV, then you're going to be really slick. And that's where we get the last three. S, L, C, do not steal, do not lie, and do not covet. Yes, Good old George. He was funny. But he gave me this, and that was more, let's see, that was, that was a long, we won't get into how long ago that was. But I still have it. 
And it's really easy for me to go back in my mind and remember what the Ten Commandments are in order. Now, I want you all to notice that I did everybody in this room a favor and I didn't give you a quiz as to being able to name any of the Ten Commandments. Most people miserably fail that. But by the end of the ten weeks, hopefully with this, hopefully by next week, you will have the Ten Commandments memorized in order. And that's great. I want us to do that. I want you to do that. But really, if we don't put the Ten Commandments into actionable language, if we don't put it into something that we can then do, the Ten Commandments are just words that were written 3,500 years ago. So the next slide shows the big ideas. I'm probably going to be the names of my sermons for the next 10 weeks as we go through this, but I want to show you what they are. Have no other, have no other gods before me. Worship the right God. That is absolutely central. It is the first and foremost. It's on your notes if you want to look at it there. Also, second, have no idols. Worship the God, the right God, the only God, right. God is very concerned about his worship. We just might. I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling with this. I want to go to John 4. And I might anyways, but talk about worship. Because it is so central. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. You know, we struggle with this. We struggle with this. In fact, it might be the biggest struggle we have in the church today is that we trifle with God. Oh, I pray, I pray to the big man upstairs. I was at a wedding yesterday. They played this song. To the keeper of the stars, thank you for my loving wife. What? That makes me want to vomit. And I hate vomiting. Don't trifle with God. He is no one to be trifled with. We make God to be something we give a, a, a handful of coins to. Oh, you know, boy, God's really, this church is really happy I came. I put a 20 in that offering basket. Okay, sorry, I'll leave now. Keep the Sabbath. Some of you are going to call me a heretic because there is a certain group of Christians who adamantly insist that the Sabbath is not found in the New Testament. They are absolutely wrong, and I will show you how wrong they are when we get there. Instead, we are to repent, rest, and rejoice frequently in Jesus. I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to make you guys suffer because this is going to be such an important lesson because there is a large segment of Christianity in America that insists that we don't need to keep the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. Respect authority. That's going to be a big one. Do not despise anyone. Jesus makes this clear in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just nearly don't shoot a gun at someone or stab them in the heart. It's don't despise them. Ouch. 
Don't commit adultery. Don't dishonor your spouse. Anything you do to dishonor your spouse, according to the Sermon on the Mount, is adultery. Do not take what belongs to someone else, even if it is a corporation. Do not deceive. Oh, it's just a little white lie. Don't value stuff or circumstances or relationships more than God or others. These are the Ten Commandments. And we will see as we go, we are all going to be offended. We are all going to fall short. And we are all going to be thrust upon the great grace and power of God to live with the loving hearts that make these Ten Commandments real. Join with me as we struggle, as we argue, as we decide to be the kind of men and women that God wants us to be. Lord Jesus, we cannot do this. (laughs) I don't know how many of the Ten Commandments I've broken in the last 30 minutes, Lord. But God, I pray that You would meet us here. That we would trust You. We would by faith put our trust in Your promises so that we can be the kind of men and women who habitually, constantly, deliberately seek to live by love, which alone keeps the Ten Commandments. Give us to know You so that we will therefore love You and trust You more. In Jesus' name, Amen.